So much of our society has lost the meaning of Christmas. Um, in fact, I saw a uh, news report yesterday, a, a poll that was done, in, and the majority of Americans believe that uh, we have lost the meaning of Christmas. And it uh, kind of reminds me of a story, story of a man named Pepe Rodriguez. Pepe Rodriguez was one of the most notorious bank robbers in the early settling of the West, and uh, he, he lived j just across the border in Mexico, and he, uh, he regularly crept across in, uh, the, the border into Texas towns to rob banks, and then he would return to Mexico before the Texas Rangers could catch him. Well, these frustrated lawmen were so embarrassed by this that one, time, one day they, they illegally crossed the border into Mexico. And they, they eventually uh, uh, caught up with uh, Pepe and they cornered him in a Mexican bar that he often frequented. Well, unfortunately, the problem was Pepe couldn't speak any English. Sorry. Pepe couldn't speak any English. So the lawman asked the bartender who did speak English to translate for them. And the bartender explained to Pepe who these men were. And when he heard this, Pepe began to shake with fear. The Texas Rangers, with their guns drawn, told the bartender to ask Pepe where he had hidden the money that he'd stolen from all these Texas banks. And, and they said to him, tell him that if he doesn't tell us where the money is right now, we're going to shoot him dead on the spot. Well, the bartender translated all this for Pepe. And immediately, Pepe began to, began to, to explain in Spanish where, that the money was hidden in the town well, that they could find the money by, by counting 17 stones down from the handle, and behind the 17th stone was all the loot that he had stolen. And then the bartender turned to the Texas Rangers and said in English, Pepe is a very brave man. He says that you're a bunch of stinking pigs and, he, and he's not afraid to die. <laughs> sometimes things get lost in translation. And sometimes that's what happens with us at Christmas. But I want us to, to take a few moments before we head out today and enjoy the rest of our Christmas holiday. To, to, uh, which, by the way, I love the word holiday because if you look at the word, it's a holy day. This is a holy day. And so uh, let's look at what Christmas is really all about, because I think we need to ask ourselves, do we really understand? I don't think we ever can fully comprehend everything that it means. But the first thing we know is it means that God gave his son to us. John 3, 16. We've all heard it so many times. For God, so, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I want to ask you a question and, and I, I think we'll get a good response from this. How many of you might die for somebody else in this room today? Let me see your hand if you might die for somebody else. I believe you. I think we're surrounded. I mean, I would die for my wife. I'd die for my children. I think you would do the same. And there's many, some of you are like, well, won't you die for me, Pastor Dave? Well, you know, you know, I will as long as my kids are safe, you know. But if there's a fire, I'm, make, I'm taking care of my kids. You're on your own, all right? But, uh, but let me ask you another question. How many of you would offer your child to die for someone else in this room? Well, that's a different matter, isn't it? It's a whole different story. Yet, this is what God has done for us. This is what Jesus did freely for us because he was a willing participant in what was going on. And God, in the person of Jesus, 
pitched a tent in the flesh. That's what John 1.14 says. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And, and that word dwelling is literally a tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He pitched a tent among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. He became one of us. You know, I, I read a story written by Paul Harvey, the great Paul Harvey from yesteryear. He wrote this one time. He said, Run, one raw winter night, a man heard an irregular thumping sound against the kitchen storm door. He went to a window and watched as tiny shivering sparrows, attracted to the evident warmth inside, beat in vain against the glass. Touched, the farmer bundled up and trudged through the fresh snow to open the barn for the struggling birds. He turned on the lights tossed some hay in a corner, and sprinkled a trail of saltine crackers to direct them to the barn. But the sparrows, which had, had scattered in all directions when he emerged from the house, still hid in the darkness, afraid of him. He tried various tactics, circling behind the birds to drive them toward the barn, tossing cracker crumbs in the air toward them, retreating to his house to see if they'd flutter to the barn on their own, and nothing worked. He, a huge alien creature, had terrified them. The birds could not understand that he actually desired to help. He withdrew to his house and watched the doomed sparrows through a window. And as he stared, he, a thought hit him like lightning from a clear blue sky. If only I could become a bird, one of them, just for a moment, then I wouldn't frighten them. I, I could show them the way to warmth and safety. And at the same time, another thought dawned on him. He had grasped the whole principle of the incarnation. A man becoming a bird is nothing compared to God becoming a man. Becoming the, the concept of, of a sovereign being is big as the universe, bigger than the universe that he created, confining himself to a human body was and is just too much for some people to believe and too much for most of us to really fully grasp. But the thing about it is, there's nothing scary about a baby. I mean, you might be afraid you're going to hurt it or something, but there's, you don't walk into a room and see a baby and, and scream and turn around and run. The, a baby is vulnerable. A baby is dependent, completely dependent. A baby is weak. And the all-powerful God in that moment became weak and small and dependent. And he had never been any of those things. And because of what he did, we know that he understands what we walk through. That's what Hebrews 4.15 says. Jesus understands every weakness of ours because he was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. You know what? He knows what it feels like to be hungry. He knows what it feels like to be thirsty. He understands what it feels like to be tired, to be just so exhausted that you can't take another step. He knows what it feels like to, be, to have people pulling on him and wanting things from him and, and constantly demanding his attention. He knows what it feels like to be overwhelmed with circumstances. He knows what it feels like to be lonely. He knows what it feels like to hurt. He, he knows what it feels like to be betrayed, to be stabbed in the back by somebody that should, you should be able to trust that you love. He, he knows what it feels like to lo lose a loved one. He knows what it feels like to be human. 
And he came to this earth, but he didn't just give himself and say, I'll be a baby and that's it. But he kept on giving. He gave healing. He healed the, the blind and the lame and the deaf, the leper and every other disease that plagues humanity. And, and then on top of that, he set free those who were demonized, who were in spiritual bondage. He, he set them free with a simple word. He'd often look at them and he'd speak to the demon and say, out! And they were gone. He gave understanding. He taught people the truth. He taught the people with authority. He showed them how things really are, how they really work at the deepest levels of the universe. And then he gave forgiveness. He forgave all who came to him with an open and repentant heart, often causing great controversy because they'd say, who is this man that can forgive sins? Who does he think he is? And then he suffered and he died. He gave his life and then he rose again. And in doing all of these things, here's, here's the main thing I want us to get today. In doing all these things, in coming, in, in, in healing, in, in being one of us, in giving and giving and giving and doing all these things, in suffering, in dying on the cross, in being raised again, the truth is in all of that, he chose us. He chose us. Now, I just want to say, I want to, I want to help illustrate this by telling a story. When I was a child, when I was a, a, a boy, I was not, and I still am not, what you would call athletically gifted. Now, I was not uncoordinated. I had good hand-eye coordination. I was not awkward. I loved playing baseball and those sort of things. But, but my growth spurt in life came a little bit later than most of the other kids, so I was always one of the smaller kids in class. Anybody, anybody relate to that? You know what I'm talking about. And, and I, I was coordinated, but I, I couldn't jump high, and I couldn't run fast. Now, I won't say that I was slow, but they timed my 40 with a calendar, so if that tells you anything. <laughs> but in grade school, we, we went through this ritual. Maybe you went through the same thing. Maybe they outlawed it by the time you went to school, I don't know, but, but uh, I think it was actually designed to be torture to try to develop character or something, I don't know, but it, that ritual was the ritual of picking teams for, for re recess. Anybody remember those? Anybody been there? And uh, in, in that moment, you know, everybody lines up against a wall, and the teacher had picked captains, captains, I think we did it for like a week at a time, and and the teacher had picked the captains and they would begin assembling their team of destiny. This is going to be the greatest athletic uh, team in history, you know. And, and, but when this happened, I hated it. I hated this moment. Why? Well, because I was the, one of the smaller kids in class. I was usually one of the last kids to be chosen. I hated it. It was just awful. Just standing there and watching while child after child after child was chosen before me. And once in a while, it came down to where it was only me at the end. And at that point, one of the worst parts of it is that all of a sudden, an argument would break out. And it would go something like this. No, you take him. No, he's on your team. And I'm telling you, that makes a person feel so good. It makes them feel so wanted. But I remember one time, though, one time it was different. Because one time, the captain that had been, one of the captains that had been chosen was one of my best friends. 
And I'll never forget that day because I was standing there as usual and I was waiting to be chosen last or near the end just like I was every other time. But on this day, my friend picked me first. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I will tell you this, we didn't win many games, but I, I was so excited. I was, I mean, I was the first one chosen. And you know what? I knew in that moment that my friend was really my friend. I knew he really cared for me because he didn't pick me for what I could do for him or what I could do for his team. He picked me, he chose me simply because he was my friend, simply because he loved me. That's what Jesus did. He chose you not for what you could do for him. I know sometimes we feel pretty good about ourselves and maybe you're one of those that you think to yourself, boy, the Lord sure is lucky to have me today. You know, you know, you have those days when you feel so good. But the truth is, he didn't pick you for what you could do for him. What can you what can you do for an all powerful God? What does he need from you? He doesn't need anything from you. He didn't pick you because you'd be handy. He chose you. Because he loves you. He said, I want you. I want you. So what's our response to that? Our response is to understand what has been done for us and then worship him in, in gratitude, which, which gratitude is a lost art in today's world because everybody is so entitled to everything. And I can tell you this, anything to which you feel entitled, you will not be grateful for that thing. Why would you be grateful if you're entitled to it? And so we need to understand what he's done, that, that he gave up the splendor of heaven, that he walked away. The, the Bible says in Philippians, there's a kenosis or an emptying of himself. He emptied himself and he became, he, the creator of the universe, became helpless and vulnerable as a baby. And he gave his life for us. He, he gave us salvation. And, and on top of that, you know, now he's, he's preparing a place for us. And I think about that. You know, the world was created in six days Imagine what heaven must be like because he's been working on it for nearly 2,000 years. You ever thought about that? But he gives us health. He gives us peace. He gives us strength. He gives us comfort and every good gift. He has touched us. How many times has he touched you right when you needed? So many times when, he needed, when we needed his touch, whether it was for healing or for peace or for strength or for wisdom or discernment or for provision or comfort or for assurance. He's reached down through the veil of time and space and he has touched us just when we needed his touch the most. What a, what a thought that, that an all-powerful God reached down and he made contact with us. And the only, this is what Paul said, the only reasonable response is to offer ourselves as an act of worship to this magnificent loving God. This is what he said, in Romans 12, 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. This is your true and proper worship. This morning, I want to I I read a letter to you. It was written by a man named Dan Taylor in a book. It was called Letters to My Children. And in this particular letter, Dan is writing to his son, whose name is Matthew. This is what he says. I love this story. I've read it a number of times. I don't know if I've ever read it here or not, but uh, this always touches me, always moves me. 
This is what it says. Dear Matthew, when I was in the sixth grade, I was an All-American. I was smart, athletic, witty, handsome, and incredibly nice. Things went downhill fast in junior high, but for this one year at least, I had everything. Unfortunately, I also had Miss Owens for an assistant teacher. She helped Mr. Jenkins, our regular teacher. She knew that even though I was smart and incredibly nice, there was still a thing or two I could work on. One of the things you were expected to do in grade school was to learn to dance. My parents may have had some reservations at first, but since this was square dancing, it was okay. Every time we went to work on our dancing, we did this terrible thing. The boys would all line up at the door of our classroom. Then one at a time, each boy would pick a girl to be his partner. And the girls all sat at their desk. As they were chosen, they left their desk and joined the snot-nosed kids who had honored them with their favor. Believe me, the boys did not like doing this. At least I didn't. But think about being one of those girls. Think about waiting to get picked. Think about seeing who was going to get picked before you. Think about worrying that you'd get picked by someone you couldn't stand. Think about worrying whether you were going to get picked at all. Think if you were Mary. Mary sat near the front of the classroom on the right side. She wasn't pretty. She wasn't real smart. She wasn't witty. She was nice, but that wasn't enough in those days. And Mary certainly wasn't athletic. In fact, she'd had polio or something when she was younger. One of her arms was drawn up and she had a bad leg. And to finish it off, she was kind of overweight. Here's where Miss Owens comes in. Miss Owens took me me aside one day and said, Dan, next time we have square dancing, I want you to choose Mary. She may as well have told me to fly to Mars. It was an idea that was so new and inconceivable that I could barely hold it in my head. You mean pick someone other than the best, the most pretty, the most popular when my turn came? That seemed like breaking a law of nature or something. And then Miss Owens did a really rotten thing. She told me it was what a Christian should do. I knew immediately I was doomed because I knew she was right. It was exactly the kind of thing Jesus would have done. I was surprised, in fact, that I hadn't seen it on a Sunday school flannel board yet. Jesus choosing the lame girl for the yeshiva dance. It was bound to be somewhere in the Bible. I agonized. Choosing Mary would go against all the coolness I had accumulated. The day came when we were to square dance again. If God really loved me, I thought, he'll make me last. Then picking Mary will cause no stir. I will have done the right thing and it won't have cost me anything. You can guess where I was instead. For whatever reason, Mr. Jenkins made me first in line. There I was, my heart pounding. Now I knew how some of the girls must have felt. The faces of the girls were turned towards me, some smiling. I looked at Mary and saw that she was half turned to the back of the room, her face staring down at her desk. Mr. Jenkins said, okay, Dan, choose your partner. I remember feeling very far away. I heard my voice say, I choose Mary. Never has reluctant virtue been so rewarded 
I still see her face undimmed in my memory. She lifted her head on her face, reddened with pleasure and surprise and embarrassment, all at the same time was the most genuine look of delight and even pride that I have ever seen before or since. It was so pure that I had to look away because I knew I didn't deserve it. Mary came and took my arm as we'd been instructed and she walked beside me, bad leg and all, just like a princess. I never saw her after that year. I don't know what her life's been like or what she's doing, but I'd like to think she has a fond memory of at least one day in sixth grade. I know I do. Do you understand? We're Mary. We're Mary. We were twisted. We were broken. We were crippled. We were deformed in our sin. And yet God still chose us by coming down from heaven as a little baby. He chose us when we had nothing to offer. When we were the crippled girl, when we were the the, the boy that was messed up, when we were the one that nobody else wanted, that nobody else would choose, he chose us. You had nothing to offer him, yet he says, I want you. He came to us, and he allowed his body to be ravaged and broken and bloodied and bruised and twisted on the cross to show us that he had chosen us for his family. And regardless of the scars that you bear from the ravages of sin, regardless of the, the memories that you may have of things that you've done, regardless of the, of the cracks in your life, Jesus came down to you on Christmas to let you know that you are loved by God. He came to push back the darkness in this world. He came so, to us so that we could come to Him. He came so that we could do more than simply exist. He came so that we could live life and live life to the fullest, to live life and that more abundantly. And you know what? The only reasonable response to that kind of love is to offer ourselves as an act of worship, as we read earlier. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let this Christmas be a reminder that you have been chosen by God. Let this Christmas be a reminder that He has opened the door to become sons and daughters of the Father. That's what Christmas is really all about. It's not about a baby in a manger. That's beautiful. That's nostalgic. That's wonderful. It's powerful. It's supernatural. But He didn't stay a baby in a manger, did He? Christmas is about the fact that He chose us, that He loved us enough in our brokenness, in our, the ugliness of our sin, in our, our darkness, He chose us. And He said, I love them too much just to let them go to hell. I choose them. That's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray together.
Father, as we've gathered today, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to realize what a powerful moment this is, that what we celebrate at Christmas is not simply um, presents and gifts and family. and It's not even just merely a baby in a manger, but it's more than that. It's a baby who grew up, who walked this earth, who went through the things that we went through, who experienced everything that we've experienced, yet in the middle of all the temptation, never sinned. And, and, that, and that baby grew up to be a man who gave his life as the perfect sacrifice, who took my place on the cross. And in so doing, he said, I'm doing this for you. I don't have to. There's no reason for me to come to this earth other than simply that I love you. And Lord, I just pray that we remember that at this Christmas, that this Christmas is a reminder that you have chosen us, that you have redeemed us. And because of that, all the glory belongs to you. All the glory belongs to you.